0: Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today on The Stacks, we are joined by Lisa Lucas. She is the Senior Vice President and Publisher at Pantheon and and Books, a Penguin Random House division. She's also the former Executive Director of the National Book Foundation, which is the organization that brings you the National Book Awards. We talk today about Lisa's new role in publishing, what the future of publishing could look like, and, of course, about some of Lisa's favorite books. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. And Lisa will be back to discuss September's book club pick, The Trees by Percival Everett. So make sure you tune in for that episode on September 28th. If you love this podcast and want more of it, please head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks and join The Stacks Pack. That's a way you can support this independent podcast while also earning perks like our virtual book club, our monthly bonus episodes access to our incredible Discord community, and so much more. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. And now it's time for my conversation with Lisa Lucas. All right, everybody. I am so excited today. I am joined by, I think for the very first time ever on the show, a publisher. I've never had a publisher, an editor, an SVP. I've never had anybody like you. So, Lisa Lucas, welcome to The Stacks.
1: Ah, Thanks for having me. Um, Happy to be your
0: first. I'm so excited. I have like five years of questions for you. (laughs) Even though I know you haven't been a publisher for five years, but you're going to carry the mantle for a little bit for your people. because I've asked a few editors to come on and they're like, I'm scared. (laughs) I guess they don't well, like to be in front of the microphone.
1: It's hard. It's a really behind the scenes job in a lot of ways. I, but I'm unusual in the sense that I just came from a really front of house job that also had a lot of granular, you know, sort of administrative tasks that people never really knew about. But um, I'm sort of a weird hybrid. And so trying to figure out how to navigate, you know, what's like external and how much can we talk about other people's books and,
0: you yeah. know, just
1: figuring out my way is like there's not a lot of great like models for it. So.
0: Yeah. So really quickly, before we kind of dive in for people who don't know you or for people who know you, but maybe don't know you as well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, maybe a few past little jobs or things you've done? Give us a little bit of a sense of who Lisa Lucas is. Ooh,
1: that's tough. How do you like summarize yourself? Like I get to I know. cherry pick with what I want to say. Um, so I am a publisher, as you know, but I think I've just been until I started this job, I was really like, I would people like, what do you do? And I am like, a nonprofit administrator, Right? Like, mm-hmm. it's like, which is so many different things. It doesn't really say much to be like, I'm a nonprofit yeah. administrator. But, you know, I think it's like similar to be a producer. It's similar to be a publisher. It's similar to like coordinate lots of things in service of audiences and artists. Right? Yeah. And that's kind of whatever it was, um, always what I've done. I started out though in theater. So I had a funny little series of jobs. So I, I'm from New Jersey. Okay. Um, I was born in New York, grew up in New Jersey. Um, kind of from two different towns. So I'm from Teaneck and Montclair, which are both these like, really interesting 1990s like experiments in diversity
0: right like it's <laughs> i like, know
1: montclair one yeah. of
0: my best friends from college went to montclair i was from sure. montclair right
1: so but you know people who have just moved to montclair or you know have lived there for the past 10 years or so it's really different than it was in different. like the 80s and 90s at yeah. right so it's interesting because it's, to- it's kind of a totally different town while retaining some of those and anyway montclair new jersey is (laughs) not why anyone's here um but um but it is instructional in that like i just grew up in this like multicultural kind of like there was just a lot of it was really progressive education we were reading you know like i think all the conversations about how we shift the canon you know we really Mm. had a new canon you know it's like Mm -hmm, i remember mm -hmm. like just being in high school and it's like you obviously read you know contemporary black letters and you read the ancient greeks and you read you know mockingbird but you also you know it's like It was as important to read Maya Angelou as it was To Kill a Mockingbird, as it was Invisible Man, you know, as it was Gabriel Garcia Marquez, right? So it was just this really interesting series of kind of both history and the humanities lessons that came from there. But that really informed my worldview. So I left college, I went to school in Chicago, and I ended up working in a theater company. I was really interested in theater. I thought I wanted to be like a dramaturg, but I was working basically as the telephone manager, or the, like, (laughs) annual fun person. But it was like, you know, my first job, I was 21. But I got really obsessed with their youth program and, you know, got to mentor a young person and, you know, would see all of these amazing performances that are largely, you know, sort of white-attended theater. And you go to these students, showings and it would be like the performance would be full of kids from all over chicago and chicagoland and you were like and and they'd be so into it they would just be watching our town or watching whatever play we were showing for young people and just the engagement was so incredible and 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 so between seeing those programs happening and doing a little bit of work with young people coming from educators myself um grandparents and um i just sort of got really obsessed with access so i ended up Mm. working in film Long story how I got there, but I ended up working on youth programs in film at a nonprofit. And so I teach kids to read. You know to make their own films would do some screenings mm. so that people were exposed we would teach teachers to teach their own students how to make films we would make films with kids and we would do pre-professional development for young people but it was all really about like the general premise was like making the place that i worked which was like a big part of new york city tribeca i worked at tribeca film mm. institute and making like oh, okay. the festival and the institute feel like we were there in new york city founded right after 9 11 trying to bring energy and you know mm. and stability mm-hmm. back downtown. And I think it grew into this large outsized place. And it was really like, well, this feels like it belongs to some people back then early days. Right. And how do you make it feel like it's for everybody? How do you make these films, this festival, you know, we'd be showing a movie about like kids in the Bronx on a chess team. And the audience would be like, why aren't there any kids from the Bronx in here or like parents from the Bronx?
0: Right, Right. The
1: movie really was, if not, as useful if not more useful as useful for for those communities to see so it was a kind of roundabout way to like kind of bust it open and just sort of like really say this is for you whether it's making whether it's professional whether it's you know just coming to a movie with, through premieres for eighth graders and they get to walk the red carpet mm. and just you know it was just sort of like this is what it's like this is you know this is for you you were a part of this so I did that for years and years and then when I left um I kind of knew I wanted to be in books I'd always loved books I think there were a few moments in my life where I danced around just being like I really want to work in books I love books it's my mm-hmm. true love I was always like at my old jobs everybody was like I remember you would like be at the coffee shop across the street before reading a book or I'd you know Steppenwolf the theater that I worked at in Chicago there were two buildings and so you had to kind of walk across the street but it was a really not busy street so I'd always be waiting at this long light like, <laughs> reading a book because I always had to run back and forth and I just take my book with me yeah. And so everybody thought that was like super nerdy, but I didn't have any time, you know, with work. It was like, it was the time that I had to read. So I ended up leaving film and, and sort of feeling like maybe this is the time, but it was really difficult to get a job. And so I ended up volunteering. I was doing other things. I was still doing film education and like working, but like right. I started volunteering at the same time for the Brooklyn Book Festival and for Guernica Magazine. I became the publisher of Guernica Magazine eventually, which is an online magazine of art and politics Amazing! They're really just so good, and um, mm-hmm. and and I just was like treated it kind of like grad school. I was obsessed. I wanted to meet agents, and I wanted to meet <laughs> editors, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't really looking for a job per se, as much as I was looking to like really understand, in the same way that I understood the sort of like youth development nonprofit right. well community right. to understand landscape. So it's like I met all the nonprofits, and I met lots of you know the publishers, and you know, and just really made it my business to kind of meet people. And eventually I ended up getting the job at the National Book Foundation as the executive director, which is if somebody who doesn't know me knows me, that's probably why. Um, Because that was like a really like public facing job. And I did that for, I think, five awards, five awards, I think five awards. And then I ended up at Pantheon and shock and and here Here we are and here. Here we are. Yeah. (laughs) So that's kind of like as quickly as I could get it down.
0: That was good. That was good. I have a background in theater. I studied theater in college, and I thought I would be a performer. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Yeah, long, long never, story short, you're still
1: you're still in front of the
0: front of the mic. I am. I am, I am not. I knew somehow. I yeah. was like, I just don't want to be in front of no, the mic. You. Yeah, I I was not a good actress at all, and so I sort of like. <laughs> Like I went to NYU and so everyone there's like, not everyone, but a lot of people are like really talented, like mm-hmm. incredibly talented actors. And I knew it wasn't me. Right. Like I just knew. Like I'd be in a scene with someone and be like, you're great. And what's my line again? You know, That's <laughs> you know? how I felt in calculus, except I didn't like yeah. it. Yeah. I, well, I'm so bad at math anyways. um, <laughs> Okay. So now we're fast forward. We're here. You're in publishing. You're new. You got the job in 2020. You started, I think, in 2021. Yeah,
1: early 2021.
0: I read the article about you in the New York New York Times Magazine. Very fancy. Very great photo. Like, Thank dream. You. Dreamy. So dreamy. But I want to talk. So one of the things that comes up in that article that I think is the thing that I am the most curious about is this idea of readership. And mm-hmm. you kind of touched on it earlier in the beginning, talking about theater and making it more accessible and who's the audience and how can we bring people in and all of that. And so I'm wondering, like... How are you thinking about taking on this new role? Like, where do you see yourself and I guess like the future of publishing if they were to follow your vision?
1: I know. I'm not the future of publishing is what I would say. (laughs) I am. No, 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 no. I'm 42. You know, there's there's other people that are the future, you know, and it's not me, right? I'm the bridge, if anything. Okay. Right. Good. And, and, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I have a deep and profound respect for an enormous amount of the traditions of publishing and for Mm. the craft of publishing. But I also, am a really firm believer that, you know, we evolve. Right. And we Mm -hmm. pivot, you know, not pivot to video, obviously, but like, you know, it's like, I think we have to be limber when we're dealing with, you know, sort of the cultural conversations that are happening. So, you know, gosh, I mean, the question of readership is the only question. Um, You know, the only question about books is who's going to read them when you spend Mm -hmm. so much time producing them. I mean, I think that we also have a real profound cultural misunderstanding of how a book is made. Um, Now, I think that I always want to be really careful because I never want to diminish the role of the artist ever. That's the most important thing. Creativity and the labor that goes into it, you know, and the value of that is so profound. Right. But I think in service of promoting the creative person, the writer, the filmmaker, the you know, it's like I think that we lose a lot about the actual craft of making and, you know, the commerce of any particular art firm, you know, it's like I think we don't know a lot about, you know, the costume designer and how important that is or the right. set director or what a producer even does. You see executive right. producer a thousand times and you have no idea what that even means. Right. Now for books, I think that you have it's, it's interesting in particular because it's like the book feels like a conversation directly between one person's brain and mm-hmm. what is created and the reader, Mm -hmm. right? This is the conversation Mm -hmm. that you're having, the direct relationship. And it feels like, ah, well, a person made this book and all we did was slap a cover on it, right? We slapped a cover on it and we put a a barcode on it and we sold it, right? But, you know, the business of books is so elegant in many ways, right? Because it's it's, it's as collaborative as film in a lot of ways, you know, because the collaboration for, you know, film isn't just the writing of the script or the directing of it. It's the, you know, what type, how, what type will we use? You know, who's going to typeset it? Who's going to copy edit it lovingly? Who's going right. to have a conversation with that author so that they can have that back and forth, that nurturing, creative person that's going to sit down and sort of say, okay, I'm your reader. I'm your first, best, closest reader. Right. You know, and I'm here to get you ready for, I'm a stand in for so many readers. Right. And so I think first you have to think about all of that. You know, it's like, right. I think that, and the reason why I'm making long way around is because I think that sometimes when we say how much should it cost to buy a book, how much should a book right. cost, right? Well, you know, some people want them to be free, some people want them to be $1.99, some people want them to be think they should be $30. But yeah. it's it's easy to demonstrate value around a film. We know what the budget was for making the movie, not how much people got paid. The budget for making the movie. This is how much it took right. this production and we don't think about books like that and i think that that sometimes reduces the value of a book or the worth Mm -hmm. of a book for audiences Mm -hmm. because we don't understand what goes into making one and i think that in order to develop a readership of course you need good books of course you need books that are you know that are in communion with the world that we actually live in which is you know where you get sort of we want to see own voices stories we want to see you know we want to see everything right you want right. early, broad full eclectic delicious all over right. the whole body of literature but even if you have that which we're starting to see right what that looks like you also need a larger audience that's actually going to see great value in all of that and i think that you right. have to do two I think we know that we need to diversify. I think we know we need to be bolder, more thoughtful, more open, more inviting, more accessible, both for readers and for writers and for professionals inside of books. But I don't think we always remember that we need to tell our story in a way that Mm -hmm. that says this is something, you know, very rigorous and beautiful and takes lots of people and every book. Every book is so, so special. And I think we forget how much work goes into each one. I mean, even a movie, you see a movie, and even if you didn't like it, you still think it's
0: impressive. Right, right. And I think, like, as someone – I started this show as a reader. Mm -hmm. I'm not a writer. I don't know – I didn't know anything about writing or publishing. I just knew what books made me feel. And, you know, as I mentioned, I was a performer. I worked in the theater. I, I, you know, film and television. But even when those things, there is a list at the end or a program that you get and it says, so and so did this, so and so did that. With a book, there is no, unless it's in the acknowledgements, and I do read the acknowledgements, my favorite part of the basically best. every book nice. <laughs> I love. But I don't think a lot of people do. No, I, you but know, we I don't started have. reading them more. Yeah, there's no like there's no codified hey, editor. mechanism
1: for us to sort of articulate all of the different, very specific, right. highly skilled jobs that go into the making of one little book.
0: Right, and well, that sort of brings me to my question about you, which is what do you, what is your job? Yeah, what is a publisher? Who is a publisher? Like, how are you different than? a marketing person? How are you the same? Like, as I know that a publisher wears many hats, some edit books, some don't. So like, Mm -hmm. what is the job? Yeah. I mean, and I think that's
1: sort of like, what's the job of being an executive director? Well, you're in charge of the nonprofit, (laughs) right? But what does that mean? And the reality is it means so much. It means a different thing at every different place. Ultimately, I think, you know, um, where do I sit, right? Like, so I'm kind of the, the person who drives the narrative of what we're doing. Right. So it's mm-hmm. like, so I'm in conversation with all of editorial and all of marketing and all of publicity and sales and design and managing ed and finance right. and legal and <laughs> production. And you're working with all of these groups of people to really maintain the sort of, for me, the rigor, the consistency, the viability of a mm-hmm. list of 40 to 50 books. Right. And, um, and, and whatever it takes, just like at the National Book Awards, what was my job? Well, or the National Book Foundation, what was my job? It was like, well, my job was to make sure that we didn't run out of money to raise money to, you know, oversee the consistency of our programming to mm-hmm. you know directionally lead the institution where we're working. Um, now my job is like, right, like Pantheon doesn't stand alone, right? So the way that, the company that I work for and lots of publishing instructors is that I'm an imprint, well, two imprints, mm-hmm. Pantheon and Schocken, And then Pantheon and Schocken belong to a division. And that division is Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group. And then that division belongs to the larger company, which is Penguin Random House, right? Yeah. So that's how it, so now I'm the little boss of my little fiefdom, right? Like, so I'm in mm-hmm. charge of yeah. Pantheon. <laughs> but then there's, an, uh, then there's a president of Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group, and she's in charge of, of all of us. And the consistency and the profitability and the this, that, and the other, everything that we do as a group. So, you know, it's kind of like, I think of it as like baby, pub, you know, publishers, like the publishers grow over time. Right, and right, your right, job gets right. more like granular. The best I would kind of, you know, because I don't deal with HR and like we work in a bigger company, it feels a lot more like being a program director you know okay. where it's like I am the director of education and that means that everything that is educational I do I I you know and and I also support my leaders in making sure that I'm feeding into what we're doing consistently
0: and how hands on are you like as is, is every book cover that comes through, do you, yeah. you get to say yes, no? Mm-hmm. Every book that's acquired, you get to say yes, no? I wouldn't say or like wh- yes, I mean, no Maybe not say yes, no. Like, weigh in, weigh in. Right. It's not a give yes, your, no environment. I
1: feel like, you know, <laughs> pu- publishing is passionate. Authors yeah. are passionate. Editors are passionate. Yeah. You know, I don't think you get to say yes and no cleanly <laughs> no. that often. Yeah. <laughs> but
0: you do sort Fair. of
1: sign off, right? So yeah. okay. I think it's like a big dance. Right. You're always dancing towards like, it's like, you know, if I want to buy a book and it costs over my clearance, then I have to go talk to my boss and say, I'm going to do the dance. I'm trying to get you to want what I want. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so (laughs) so I can't technically do it without her sign off. I don't know that she's going to be the kind of person who's just going to say, like, no. And I'm not the kind of person that's going to say no. And like, I don't think like if you keep going up, like nobody really says, like, no, even if you're saying no, you're discussing you know, the way that right. we work, the way that a publisher works, a publisher meaning like a publisher, a company that's a publisher, Yeah. you know, is largely, you know, a lot of this happens at editorial boards. We don't have a specific editorial board the way other people do. But a lot of these conversations happen like, you know, whether or not you're thinking about flap copy or jacket design or whether you're going to acquire a book or not, it's, it's a lot more collaborative than you think it's going to be. It's not mm-hmm. one person saying, I like this. Let's do it. You have to figure out right. so many other things before you can move along. So so that is what I do. I would say that I'm like in charge of the like health and consistency of Pantheon
0: and Shopkin. I love it. I love that. Um, Diversity in books. Yeah. I feel like it's important. It's the only thing I feel like I think and care about these days. (laughs) I feel like I talk about it a lot. I think about it a lot. And I have no doubt that you do as well. One of the things that I found really interesting in that New York Times article is it talked about how very early on, it talks about the first book that you acquired, which is Sweet mm-hmm. Soft Plenty Rhythm, which is coming out in September. Yes. And it talked about how you, you know, you picked it up, you started reading it, you felt moved by it. Mm-hmm. You were, it did something to you emotionally. And I just I'm so curious about how important that emotional connection is for the early, earliest of readers, the people who are getting these manuscripts, and how that can be an issue if we're expecting like a very white industry to hope that they will feel an emotional connection to a book and that that's like the the first way in. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And I'm wondering like how that can be changed and adjusted, I guess, outside of hiring more or is that really the, is that the answer? Hiring and training people of different ethnic groups, of different races of different genders, abilities, all of these things. Like, how do we make it so that that the gatekeeping on like what lands with the people in publishing is open for those other other readers we want to bring into the world of books?
1: Right. I mean, so on one hand. OK, <laughs> I don't think that anyone in publishing is cynical enough not to make money where there's money to be made.
0: Sure. Right. Sure. But I agree.
1: I also think, so I, I don't think that publishing really is like, we don't like books by people of color. No. I think what you have is a, a largely an interest in inability, uh, not even an inability. For many years, that was not our focus point. Mm-hmm. We were not focused for all of the 70s, 80s, 90s, 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s, 10s, right. 100s. Right,
0: right, right. And backwards, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: we were not focused on making sure that we were learning how to sell work to other communities, Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I think that what that means is you have an enormous amount of operational and strategical and perhaps emotional work to do around figuring out how to rebuild systems that actually serve the whole of literature, right? Right. And I think that, you know, so I don't know that it's, I think people would really like it to be a question of how much you pay an assistant, I think it would like it to be a question of it is how quickly that assistant is promoted. I think people would like for it to be a matter of just hiring certain people. I think people would like for it to be a matter of just firing certain people. And unfortunately, none of those things are true in terms of you could change any one of those four things and it wouldn't change a goddamn thing.
0: Right. Right.
1: You know, it's like, so that's, my true feeling about it but I think that you're dealing with something that is a system and I think Mm -hmm. that we learned you know we learn on the internet all the time how little we all really understand about the business of publishing and I think that when you understand how things work you see that you can't just change one thing and then magically have it fix all of the other pieces you know and I think we spend so much time focusing on editorial people don't even really know who works in the production department or who works in the um, managing editorial departments. People literally just don't know who those people, what they do. And so I think that what the internet is trying to do is come up with really big, sticky ways to complain about something that is a much more nuanced issue, Mm -hmm. which can be really irritating as a champion <laughs> of diversity in publishing, right? Sure. And, you know, I think people people get really, and one of the things that I have a hard time is I'm an African-American woman and, you know, I have black politics, right? Because I'm a black person. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's not my job. Like, it, it's like it, I'm not here just for black people. I'm here for all people, mm-hmm. right? I'm here for mm-hmm. readers. And I want to include my community. Yeah. And I want to include all the communities that have not been included. But um, we have to be careful not to make our issue the issue if we want holistic, profound change. So if I want to see more black books, right? You know, it's like, I can really focus on that, but then maybe I end up with a huge new crop of black publishing professionals who all went to Yale and all came from communities and don't really know how to think about how to work well with communities that have been the most underserved, even if it is their own, you know, identity. Right, like right, so right. so sometimes it's like so that's too simple of a fix. Hire more, right? So hire more right. is a problem because it's like you know within the black community you have plenty of classism, sure. and you have you know also since you know since the eighties and the seventies this sort of push towards like well let's let the excellent blacks go to this school and get these awards. And so you have actually like a pretty decent sized black middle class, black black educated class, black creative class that have come out of all of those decades where things were more open. Now, if everybody, right. and I'm from that community, like my dad was right. a record producer. Like I had, you know, many advantages because I grew up, you know, in the home of a, you know, sort of a successful artist. I was really open to doing work in a creative world. Now, yeah. if I just keep replicating myself, it may look like diversity to somebody who's just wants a box ticked. But right. If I just pick a bunch of people that went to the same school and come from East Coast and do whatever and just have it, you know, um, um, you know one perspective, then like I haven't really done anything. I haven't diversified mm-hmm. anything because you know what? There's a there are so many black people in America who don't have lives that are like mine at all. You know what I mean? Because right. we're all different. We're not a monolith. Right. So right. I'm using black folks as a stand in they think you could swap any community in for this or you'd have different, but it's like, but I think you have to think about diversity in a much broader way, you know, because you're really thinking about, I mean, I don't, I hear people yelling and yelling and yelling about diversity in publishing and they mean racial diversity in publishing. And, you know, honestly, I'd like to see people that look like me also saying we need rural diversity. And I don't hear that ever. It's like all the tweets. And I don't see anybody saying, first of all, remembering that rural black families, right. Mm -hmm. Are enormous. Right. the minute you just start thinking about, you're, you're not thinking about how to reflect the rural black experience. You're thinking about how to reflect your own experience. Right. And that's a fast way to just create, and which we do have when you look at black letters, you have a largely deeply educated, very erudite, you know, sort of community of people that have been writing stunning books, but not necessarily that we're writing towards a Southern rural black community.
0: Right. So how do we do that? Like how, how can we bring in, more people and not, and and I do mean that much more holistically than just racially. Like I do mean, how can we bring in rural folks? How can we bring in international folks? How can we bring Mm -hmm. in younger people higher up in companies so that, so that the next generation is feeling included and empowered? Like how can we bring in people who are disabled, people who, whatever that looks like, Mm -hmm. how can publishing do that on every level because to me, in my mind, when I think about it, but not clearly as much as you or people who work in publishing, I just think like the more stories that are out there that are telling different experiences, the more that something is likely to resonate with someone who's felt excluded. I mean, I the thing that I do do here is I interview people about books constantly. And what I hear is, oh, this one book, this is the gateway book for me, or mm-hmm. this one author, or this one person, I, I I saw what they were reading, and I was inspired by that. So I'm, I'm just wondering, kind of like, whatever the diversity is, whatever is needed to open the doors more from what it is now, which is not a monolith, but it is definitely, you know, it's, it's not as diverse as it could be. Sure. Like, wh- where do you think? So here's what I'll say. So just
1: starters, we need to put our money where our mouths are. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody mm-hmm. can be on the internet all day long on Twitter, let's call it. And they will mm-hmm. be 30,000. I'm familiar. meets <laughs> about, you know, likes on something about some book. Now I can go into BookScan and tell you right now that all of those people who were so inflamed on the internet did not buy the book. Mm hmm. So I don't want to hear people feeling like Twitter activism doesn't work in this yeah. arena. What mm-hmm. What works is buy the book, and that sounds yeah. so stupid, right? Like it's no. like you know, it's like every you know, apply for the job, like be interested in publishing, believe in us, believe in books, right? That's you know, right. a foundation. The big advice, right? But for somebody who's not going to go work in books, like actually buy the books. The you know, the, we will spend twenty dollars to go see a movie that we don't really know a whole heck of an opening weekend before the reviews have come. Right. We will make billions of dollars for one movie in one weekend. And we feel okay about the 20 bucks. We feel okay maybe about 40 bucks or 60 bucks or mm-hmm. 80 bucks because we're taking the family. Getting mm-hmm. get snacks, hundred bucks. You know, we feel really good about that. You know, we're not complaining about, we have been stopped other than the pandemic, but we didn't stop to right. movies until <laughs> you know, all hell broke loose. We don't complain about Netflix and then, oh, now there's Disney Plus and then we get Disney Plus and then, oh no, now there's Hulu. We got the Hulu and now there's Criterion Collection and we got that too. And then we got, Mm -hmm. basically we got cable again. People will spend, and and, and this is like fairly income barring sort of underneath the poverty level or just barely getting by. Right. If you have any discretionary income, you're likely to spend money on these things. Movies, clothes, like cute clothes, not like basic, I need shoes. Right, right, right. right. Like I think these shoes look nice. Yeah. Or this movie is fun or this, you know, bottle of wine is more expensive than I need it. If I just, you know, you can get, you can have a glass of wine and it can be any price, right? So people will splurge on all sorts of things. The numbers tell me that unless there's an overwhelming amount of hype and no matter how robust the conversation around diversity in books is, is that everybody who's talking about it are not buying enough books. Hmm. We get excited when a book sells 30,000 copies, right? That's, like, mm-hmm. pretty healthy. There are 325 million Americans. There are 9 million New Yorkers. And we're excited when nationally we sell 30,000 books. And yet mm-hmm. this conversation makes it to the front pages of the newspapers. People are thinking about it. They are doing it. There is a disconnect. And that's mm-hmm. back to my original point about the value of the right. book. I, diversity, diversity is hugely important to me. This is my core sort of thing.
0: Right, right. But
1: I don't even think it's worth talking about it until we can get people from our communities. I'm not even talking about people who, like, need to be, like, you know, like, welcome into a local bookstore because there's not one there, or people who, right. you know, didn't go to a certain kind of university and don't, ha- you know, don't have a certain kind of exposure level to this type of book or that type of book. I'm, forget them, right? Not forget them in an emotional way, but like- Right, but in this point, yeah. But I'm just yeah. talking about my friends. Even when I go into the bookstore with people that I love who are book people, the- I don't know if I want to buy this. I don't know if I want to do this. Uh, you know, it's like, yeah. but we spend money really nilly on all these other things that truly just make Bezos rich, just make all of these companies rich, make huge billion dollar movie corporations rich. Right. And we yeah. don't, we cannot be asked to spend 20 bucks on mm. a book that maybe we're not going to read. Right. You know, and, right, um, right. You know, or not like. And, right. But then we sit through movies that we don't like all the time, and sure. so for me, you know, how do you achieve diversity when we cannot get the support that we need financially from the communities that we're already that 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 are that are being engaged at present? I mean, right. how do you justify? You know, and I, I, it's absolutely justifiable, but and there's plenty of people who want to read books, but it's like we've got to do better with the with the being willing to buy them. And, and, you yeah. know, and I'm not saying that everybody has unlimited discretionary money by any of stretch of the imagination, but even <laughs> right, right, right. in our libraries and borrowing more readily, you know, right. it's like that matters as well, creating demand in whatever way that you can. But we need right. to be a little more, you know, I think that we need to really think about the fact that if we want books, we must buy them. They're not a thing that just sits on the sidelines, wait, you know, waiting for you when you need them. You know, right. it's like the, the the contractions and changes and growth and, you know, shrinking back that have happened over the years has an enormous amount to do with consumer demand. And we're so precious. Nobody likes to call a book a consumer product because it's not really, you know, it is and it isn't right. Like on some level, it is something that, you know, has a price on it and a barcode and a bisat code and you're buying it and we're selling it. But it's also this precious special thing, right? This art form. The book itself is an art form and the literature inside of it is an art form, right? So it's hard to talk about it, but it's like, but if people stop buying Nikes, there's no Nike. Right. So, and especially with a lot of these indies. Yeah. Which are much smaller, you know, and have a lot less room to fail, you know? And so like, we've got to value the books.
0: But don't you think that, I mean, maybe not, I'm not every indie, but I feel like a lot of indies end up having the ability because they're smaller to be more kind of experimental to do different things.
1: They're doing great books. And I think that honestly, corporate publishing in the past five years has published some extraordinary stuff. Like I don't, I don't think you can actually look at the books and say, Oh wait, they're (laughs) not, we're not publishing things that we can relate to now. I think if you were to go back 10 or 15 years ago, it was a lot different, but right now it's actually like a real glory time of publication. Yeah,
0: no, I agree with that. I mean, just since I've started the show in 2018, I feel like, publishing like there are books that have changed that the way that books are or what books are coming out has changed just in the last five years from my singular experience Mm -hmm. okay let me ask you this this is a totally opposite kind of question you were on the outside working in different ways but not in publishing until recently what's the thing about publishing that has surprised you in the best way like now that you're inside what's the thing where you were like wow this is actually incredible and I love this at the end of every day, there's a book. Yeah. The publisher said that to
1: me when I was starting. He said, it's going to be hard, and you'll have bad days, and you'll have good days. But the special thing is, at the end of every day, there's a book. Hmm. And, yeah. of course, I knew that, right? It's your job to make books. But there's just Sweet. something, like, incredible, you know? Yeah. And and I think the collab, the level of collaboration, you know, wasn't as clear to me. And it's really a mm. special journey on one project that you and a group of people go on. And it's just it's it's just I, I, I knew it would be satisfying in some way, but I didn't know how just nourishing, even mm. when it's trying
0: to kill you, how nourishing. Yeah. it can be. <laughs> you know? OK, I love that. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. OK. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Okay, we're back on the line of at the end of every day, there's a book. We're gonna talk about your taste in books because we haven't even gotten to that part yet. But before we do, we do the segment called Ask the Stacks where someone's written in for a book recommendation and we get to give them one or two or three. Um, So this one comes from Tanya. And Tanya says, I have a really hard time finding contemporary literary fiction that I enjoy. As a forever single, I have almost no interest in reading about families or couples or people really intent on being in either. I really just want to read about single people or people who act single doing single people stuff. Somewhat of an exception would be books about bad moms who neglect or abandon their children to live their lives. Love that. I also don't mind reading about friends. Any thoughts? Good books that Tanya's liked are A Pale View of Hill's by Kazo Ishiguro, and Now is the Time to Open Your Heart by Alice Walker. Bad books, that she, or books that don't fit, she wrote bad, but I think she means books that don't fit in with what she wants. I don't want to get Tanya in trouble. Luster by Raven Leilani, because even though she's a single woman, she's preoccupied with her next hookup. Agatha of Little Neon, a single woman but spends most of her book unhappy with her little nun click. So that is Tanya's question. I, I can go first if you want a second to think about it. Tanya, I have to tell you this. I am the worst person for this because you know I don't really read that much literary fiction. And I also just... I don't know. I read literary fiction usually based on true stories. So here's what I have for you. I haven't read them all. They might not fit. Don't hate me. The first one, though, is Motherhood by Sheila Hetty. I know that she the book is basically autofiction, and she's going back and forth about whether she wants to become a mother or not. So it's like kind of like the pros and cons. I think it's a really interesting book. Um, it's not exactly what you want. Then I'm going to give you nonfiction because I am who I am, which is No One Tells You This by Glennis McNichol. And that's a memoir all about like being single and the pro and like why it's great and what you're able to do and all of that. And then the last one is not exactly what you want either, but I'm going to say Sugar by Bernice McFadden. It's about sort of single friendship vibe. So those are mine. This is not my best. This is not my best round. Tanya, don't hate me. OK,
1: ah, Lisa, you're up. Gosh, <laughs> it's a tough one. It's hard. Um, I'm gonna say, you know, one of the books that I read this past year that I loved really profoundly that had just absolutely nothing to do. There was a little family in it, but not in not in the sort of like family way. Um, okay. It's called The Immortal King Rao by Wahini Vara, mm. which is, she used to be, um, or is still maybe I don't know, a tech reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and it's this look at this man and his daughter, but not again, not family. Yeah, that have I don't even know how to explain it to you. It's so difficult. It's it's such <laughs> a wild ride, but it's about technology and control. So basically, the world has become governed by the algorithm. And mm. some people said we don't want to do this, and they became people who live on all of the islands around the world were reclaimed for them and he's developed this technology that connects the brain straight into the internet and all hell is breaking loose and it also deals with the delete community in india uh which mm. are the untouchables. and so it's really thinking about sort of this man who became one of the most wealthy and important people in the entire world who came from this delete family and so you sort of see his rise but it's it's extraordinary and it's like really some of the best and, and it is speculative but it's not speculative in the sort of like i only read sci-fi way it's very much a literary fiction
0: okay. work
1: Um, And so it reads a lot more like a novel than it does like anything else. So that's a really, really good one. I would also say that maybe I would try checking out a little bit. um, How about, ooh, this is a hard one. How about Benjamin Labatute, um, which was a book that everybody loved last year. I don't know if I'm saying his name right, um, but it's called When We Cease to Understand the World, which is actually about Mm. um, physicists. It's a nonfiction novel. Okay which is the whole new invention of recently, or not. And it's very dense material, thinking about, you know, sort of science and its impact on humanity and ethics. But it's also just, like, rampagingly readable. Um, Mm. And I think it was a book that surprised almost everyone. He is Chilean, I believe, and it's really a phenomenal novel.
0: Fantastic. Okay, Tanya, those are your suggestions. If you read them, you have to let us know what you think. Everyone else, you can email AskTheStacks at thestackspodcast.com to get your book recommendations next month. Okay, Lisa, I'm so excited. Here we go. Two books you love, one book you hate. Oof.
1: Two books I love. Um, Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place. And also, I love The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton. A book oh that goodness. I hate Ooh, I never like to say books that I hate. <laughs> um, I hated reading *Heart of Darkness*.
0: Okay, there you go. I think I think someone someone else has said that here. I can't remember who it was, but that's definitely happened here. Um, okay, what's the last really great book you've read?
1: My garden book by Jamaica Kincaid, um, mm. which is a very wonderful book about gardening um, with Jamaica's trademark snappiness. Uh, she's both delighted and enraged by her garden and the story yeah. of her home in Vermont and the garden and how it came to be and the relationships around it and family and whatnot. It's just like beautiful. Book.
0: Okay. What are you currently reading?
1: I'm currently reading The Rabbit Hutch by Tess Gunty.
0: Okay. And how are you a sing what we call here a one book pony or can you read multiple books at a time?
1: I have to read multiple books at the same time for work, but I try to read one work, one personal or oh, one right fiction, right. one nonfiction.
0: Okay. And do you read? Do you use an e reader? Do you read off the page? Are you an audiobook person?
1: Preference is on the page, happy to listen to an audiobook, mostly listen to celebrity memoirs. Same. And I e read for work, never for pleasure.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. What are some books that are coming out? soon or books that you've just been wanting to get to that you're looking forward to reading
1: gosh i mean i'm so focused on the books that we have coming out i mean of course <laughs> i think that sweet soft plenty rhythm by laura world yes, yes yes yes, I'm yes also very very excited i have already read it but i'm really excited for the world to read jonathan escoffery's um oh, yes. novel, I, if i, I survive out, you i survive you uh which i think is going to be stunning it is stunning but i think it's i think people are going to really love it um so that's one that's not mine gosh I'm excited for the award season, honestly. Me too. I feel like I I don't even know what I'm excited about. That's not, I don't want to like be like, here's Pantheon's fall list. But I'm excited for award season because I feel like that is always for me, like in time of such like amazing and robust discovery. And then you're like right on the heels of wintertime where you want to curl up and read Mm -hmm. and it's so cozy Mm -hmm. and it's just like a good season for it.
0: Yeah. Uh, I didn't even know about book awards until I started this. And now like next or when this airs, it'll be next week that the National Book Award long lists are coming out. And I'm like, Is I it can't next week? Wait. Oh yeah. Well, next week when this airs. Oh right. Not next week when we're talking. I was like, have
1: I lost have I lost my touch? No.
0: I think it's like September 14th through yeah, the sixteenth. No, 16th I was like, I know this
1: by heart. And then I was like, I'm very confused. <laughs>
0: Sorry, this is the magic of podcasting people. Uh But wait, let me ask you really quickly about about the awards. When you were working for the National Book Foundation, did you read all of the long lists? How much were you reading? I was not able to read 50 books. OK, by September 14th
1: when we announced got that got it, got it. was not a human possibility. <laughs> You're not a realize. magician. I mean, we were we would only find out at Labor Day. So we only had two weeks to put the list together. Okay. So it's like we okay. didn't even know what the books were for two weeks. I would then spend like I mean, I would be working. I'd be reading those books all year, every year. So I tried okay. to get through as many. I, there's no book until that last pandemic year that I hadn't read a piece of every. Got but it. it took me always all year. To sort of, you know, by the the time the next books came in, I was done with last year. Totally.
0: Yeah. Are there other awards that you're that are super exciting to you? I love all of the awards. I think that it's really
1: fantastic. Um, I think that um, I love the Wyndham Campbell Prizes. I think that they are always extraordinary recognition of, you know, some of the world's most super talented writers. I mean, it's always good to see the big prizes. Pulitzer Booker. The Booker. Yeah. The Booker is so American. When it was more narrow, I feel like I got more from it. Yeah. Although I still yeah. welcome it as like a prize that you know it's like that, those books are exciting. I love the I mean, they're just all great. I mean, it's like every little prize is a different thing. The Kirkus Prizes are fantastic. I think they oh, have those are
0: so good.
1: judges, I think they're really thoughtful and do great work. Um, I like the LA Times Book Prizes quite a lot. I think that's Same. a really wonderful prize. The NBCCs, which mm-hmm. is a stunner,
0: always. Um, they're all great. I, I get so much from all of them. I look forward to I love. one story prize. Yes, I love them. And what I really what's fun for me now is like learning the different personalities of the awards, because like I know that a. Pulitzer nonfiction, general nonfiction, I know I'm going to like that book. Mm-hmm. I don't care what it's about. Like that is my award. I, everyone I've ever read, I'm just like, this is my shit. And then like, I know with the Booker, it's a little harder for me. I'm not quite as into literary fiction. So sometimes I'm like, I don't know what's happening, you know, but like, it's fun. And I live in LA. So I love the LA Times one, obviously, too. Yeah. Um, Just cause it's my local paper. What's your bookstore okay. in LA? So I love I love Esauan. That's my like a one. I live very close to Chevaliers, so that's one that I often end up going to. But they don't have the selection that I want. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a little extra Caucasian there. Um, so I love Skylight. I love Reparations Club. I love Salt Eaters, uh, which is new. I've never here. been to that one because I lived it's in LA for a while. So Skylight was during the pandemic before. and stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it's owned by or it was started by Asha Grant. It's black queer woman owned. It's in Inglewood the Salt Eaters. And nice. Asha was a, a guest on the podcast a few years ago. And so I've always just stayed up with her. But they just opened at the end of last year. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super cute store. Okay. How do you pick personally? How do you pick what you're going to read next? Are you doing reviews? Are there friends? Do you have like a select group of people that you you take recommendations from? I have seen you try to sometimes source on the internet on Twitter.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> that goes for other people. And sometimes I'll draw from it. Like I'm usually trying to get a beat on sort of what just what people are reading. You know, yeah, like yeah, I just yeah. like I'll be like, what's everybody reading? And it's like it's it's nice. Forget about professionally interesting. It's just nice to know what the zeitgeist is. Yeah, what I, people I are I love interested that. in. I think it's really fun. But um, you know, gosh, I mean, there's not any rhyme or reason to my personal reading. It's like something will okay. just sort of flag up. You know, it's like I've been really into Rick Perlstein's books this past <laughs> year, which is like he's like one of the foremost um, chroniclers of the. American right
0: and the okay. conservative
1: movement, um, and he's he's not conservative. He's so he's like sort of looking at the like rise of the baddies, right, uh, right, right. And so that's been fun. And then I like deep dives. Like so, right now I am actually publishing Helen Garner in twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four, and she's like one of the dames of Australian letters. This extraordinary writer who's had a full, gorgeous career. She won the Wyndham Campbell Prize in twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. Um, and so we're republishing a ton of her work. So it's like a good opportunity. Like, so sometimes I'll just be like, pick up, oh, I need to be reading every book by Helen Garner. So let me just pick up another Helen Garner book and reread it or read it for the first time. So I love a deep dive. I've been trying to read like, so it's like, you know, there's just stuff that floats up, but it's largely just sort of where my head's at. You Mm -hmm. know, if you're having a breakup, you read a lot of breakup books. If you're in love, you read a lot of in love books or whatever. (laughs) The person you fall in love with is obsessed with, you know, it's just like, I I just sort of move with the, I have like a real, like a real sort of reactive, wave Mm -hmm. I'm I'm moving my arms in a way that's not useful for a podcast um (laughs) um, of course I was like I'm really articulating my feelings and no one knows what I'm saying at all because it's just silent
0: well I can I can hear it in your voice your voice (laughs) is sort of undulating as well (laughs) um do you have any book that you like recently that was recommended to you that was just a home run for you
1: Mm, it's so dumb. So uh, it's not dumb at all. She was really smart. But I feel like I was going through some things. And so Helen, uh, not Helen, Harriet uh, Lerner is actually Ben Lerner's mom. And she's a psychologist. And she wrote this like crazy, like very feminist, very like, super progressive, like 1990s self help books called like the Dance of Anger, and the Dance of intimacy, and the Dance of Love or whatever it is. And I read I think the dance intimacy or the dance of anger. And I was like, this is amazing. Like obsessed, yeah. like obsessed, obsessed. And I don't really read self-help, but it wasn't really self-help. It was like a lot more like bell hooks is all about love
0: than sure. it was
1: okay. like reading, like, you know, like men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Right,
0: right, right, right. I, it's, it always feels weird to call all about love, self help, but like yeah. it sort of is. But well, it's, it's self help like... adjacent, and it's like, but it's more yeah.
1: idea focused. It's not like prescriptive. It's not like do these yeah, yeah, five yeah. things and you're going to solve your life. It's actually just like a psychology book, right? Yeah. Like I feel yeah. like all about love and Harriet Lerner stuff are both just psychology books that have a practical right. application. So it's, yeah. but they look really self helpy. So I'm always like, yeah. I, <laughs> I want to tell people to read this book because it's awesome. Like especially novelists, like extra right. especially writers. <laughs> I feel like some of these really. It's not every book but like some of these books are actually just have such a, there's another book called uncoupling. Um, The one of my authors actually recommended to me, which is um, he's a sociologist and it's, it's almost like, um, you know, it's like a study of all these, it's like a study of why people break up. It's not really about Mm. like how not to break up or a real look at the systems. Exactly. Like it's no practical. It's just, this this is like, just these are the places where people come apart. And I think Hmm. for a writer and for a reader, Some of this stuff is like the most interesting thing in the entire world. So that's like kind of boring. It's not like the hot new novel or the hot new nonfiction. Um, I will say that one of the books that moved me the most this year um, that I would recommend is actually one of ours. But I inherited it. So it's not like something that I have like. But Margot Jefferson's Constructing a Nervous System, um, Mm. which are essays about, you know, just personhood and being black and what makes you you. And, you know, all of these sort of like it's just stunning. That brain. I don't know who is. Funnier, more honest, and smarter than Margot Jefferson. She's just yeah. such a force of nature. And that book, man, oof, that was a delight. I missed my train stop reading the <laughs> book that I was publishing. You know what I mean? Like, oh my God. Yeah. And I was just like, dang. I was like, we did a good book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know the book you guys did last year that I just freaking loved was seek you oh my god kristen is oh so fantastic god. that book is brilliant. i loved it so much i f- i was like emailing her team being like can she please come on it was like months after the book came out because i read it late i just i wasn't thinking that it was something that i was going to be obsessed with and then i was like she's got to come on before the year's over so good uh, she is um, stunning 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 like yeah. that book is beautiful it's so beautiful like visually and just the heart of it the whole thing Ugh, i know anyways. just like <sighs>
1: it's such a, you know loneliness it's really easy to rate a a a sort of maudlin book about loneliness, right? It's sort of easy to be like, you know, the, the, like, and I think she dresses the sort of like standard stereotypical tropes of loneliness while actually like digging so much deeper. So it's like, the thing is she's a beautiful artist and, you know, she can tell a great story, but I think that the thing that she doesn't even let you see, but she's doing is just how deep she's diving, how rigorous, how much Mm -hmm. there is in the absences, right? Like it's like how much learning she had to do to synthesize it down and, and that's yeah. the best when you can be that smart and be that thoughtful and, like, you can't see the scenes.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. To- I uh, Yes, it's my favorite. It's, like, when someone can really edit for the reader or, like, shape something for the reader and has, like, a really clear point of view and idea mm-hmm. and understanding. Ugh, and the, the idea.
1: Even in, like, it's, like, if yeah. I were to conceive of a book about loneliness on my own as Lisa Lucas, the writer, yeah. it'd be dumb. Right. But it's not dumb at all the way that Kristen deals with it. It's always a glancing. Like it's always from a different angle that you didn't expect, but it's the one you really needed.
0: Yeah. Uh, Love, 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 love. Okay, what is your ideal reading setup? Where are you? Are there snacks and beverages? Is it hot or cold? What are you sitting on? I I don't have
1: a place. I, I don't I wish I did. I think about it all the time I have not constructed the place that I like to read the most. Okay. Uh, I think what I like where I like to read is in the spaces where it's dead like if I'm on the subway or I'm in a waiting room and I have some headphones on, I like to just like use that time because it's just so trans t- transportive whatever It takes oh. you someplace else <laughs> and uh, yeah and I love like I hate waiting I'm impatient. And I just think that those are the moments where I really am like, I'm so disinterested in being involved in whatever time consuming thing that I'm doing that it's just so easy to slip into the book and be there.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: That's some of my best reading time is in the spaces in between. I like to read at like my little local bar with an Arnold Palmer because, you know, wine and reading doesn't always go together well on a certain threshold. I like to, yeah, I mean, I like to read in bed sometimes. Um, I dream of the perfect reading chair, which I somehow, it keeps eluding me.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I don't I, have a good reading chair yet. I love
1: this chair, you know, and I like did the whole thing and I was like, this is how it's going to look. And somehow I like backed myself in the corner there's no room for a good reading chair.
0: Oh, and I'm like, yeah.
1: honestly, seriously, like all <laughs> I want in this life is a
0: good reading chair. Oh my gosh. Okay. Here's our sort of lightning round. What, okay. What's the last book you bought? Mm, the last book I bought
1: was Yoga by Emmanuel Carrier.
0: Oh, oh, I'm excited about that. What's the last book that made you laugh? Last book that made
1: me laugh was probably Jamaica Kincaid's My Garden book because she's funny.
0: What's the last book that made
1: you angry? Ooh, I'm sure I read it during June 2020.
0: <laughs> okay, what's the last, oh no, what's the last book where you felt like you learned a lot? Mm, The last book where I felt like I learned a lot
1: was probably reading Bloodlands by Kim Snyder.
0: Okay. What's the last or what's a book that you feel proud to have read?
1: Uh, Swan's Way in French in college.
0: Whoa. Okay. You speak French. Shout out, Lisa. I don't really. I I used to be able to read it. It's not good Ah, anymore. That's a great fancy answer. We love this for us. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What's a book that you... Feel embarrassed about loving?
1: Ooh, a book that I feel embarrassed about loving.
0: Um, I don't. I don't know. I,
1: I think that reading is never embarrassing. Okay. I don't. I don't have one. No shame. Okay, that's fair.
0: Um, what about a problematic favorite? Rob- Roth, no doubt. Okay. Increasingly Didian. Okay. Okay. Fair. Fair. Favorite book from childhood? Vanicula. Okay. And what about a favorite book from where you're from? Ooh, well, there are not any books from where I'm
1: from that I know of, or that mean a lot to me. Um, but mm-hmm. I will say that I grew up going to Sack Harbor, which was a, you know, sort of my grandma was a teacher. And when she was a teacher, she scraped little pennies and her and her husband got a little plot of land that they couldn't even afford to buy any, buy a house on. And that mm-hmm. they built years and years later, decades later, mm-hmm. with another husband, long story. <laughs> and, <Okay. laughs> um, and it was in Sack Harbor. So I would say that Colson Whitehead, Sack Harbor is my favorite book about a place that feels like it is from where I'm from.
0: Okay. I like that. If you were a high school teacher, what's a book you would assign
1: long division by Cassie Lehman.
0: So good. Okay. Who would you person who knows every writer ever, who would you want to write the book of your life? Oh, good God.
1: Absolutely. Not one person. I'm going to pick my favorite little writer, Julian Lucas.
0: Oh, that is that your brother? Yeah. Okay, fine. That's sort of a cheat, but I'll, Amani Perry said her son, so I'll allow it. Mm -hmm. Family's Mm -hmm. in, family's in. Okay. (laughs) Family to the front. Yeah, I love this. Okay, here's my last one for you, which is stolen from the New York Times by the book. If you could require the president of the United States to read one book, what would it be?
1: I like hell, the book about unions.
0: Okay, beautiful. Lisa, a dream. This was so great. Lisa will be back the last Wednesday of the month, September 28th. We're discussing The Trees by Percival Everett for the Stacks Book Club. I'm really excited about this. And just a reminder, but you'll hear about it again next time. On September 27th, Lisa's first acquisition, Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm will be out in the world. Wait, are you nervous about that at all? No, I'm not. I'm just excited. I just want people to read it. I just like cannot wait for people to sort of love her. You know, I think they'll love it. But, you
1: know, yeah. however they feel, I'm just excited. for. It's a good world to be in.
0: Yeah. And how many books since that have you acquired? Ugh, I don't even want to know because I gotta like, do is it, that work. It's a lot. A lot. It's, it's not none. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> not none. Oh, my gosh. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Yay. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all. That does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, thank you again to Lisa Lucas for joining us today. I'd also like to thank Josie Cows for helping to make this interview possible. Don't forget, Lisa will be back on September 28th to discuss our book club pick, The Trees by Percival Everett. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks or if you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks underscore on Twitter and check out our website, TheStacksPodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright and our theme music is from Teguirigis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.